Welcome to the Savvy Shopkeeper Retail Podcast. I'm your host, Kathy Cruz. Just like you, I'm an independent retail business owner. I love the home decor and gift boutique I co-own with my sister, but I don't want it to consume me or my life. Join me each week as I share lessons learned, helpful tips, and valuable information for your retail business and life. Whether you're buying your products or making your products, whether you're a 25K business or a $2.5 million business, I'm on a mission to help indie retailers work less, profit more, and grow. Let's get started on today's episode. Welcome to episode 193 of the Savvy Shopkeeper Retail Podcast. How to Decide If It's Time to Start Wholesaling in Your Product-Based Business with Katie Hunt. I'm your host, Kathy Cruz. I have to say that I'm really excited about today's interview. I, you all know, I don't do a lot of guest interviews. I get a lot of pitches in my email inbox for podcast guests. Most of them are not a good fit. So when I received an invitation to interview Katie, I was excited about it because she really is an ideal person to interview. So many of you with brick and mortar stores also make your own products and probably some of you already wholesale. So what I really wanted to do is fill a bit of a gap here. I'm not a wholesale expert. I have content on the topic. I've taught about it. I can be helpful, but Katie's the expert. So I think this is going to be a fantastic interview for you to listen to if you're interested in wholesaling or if you already do. It's also really good for brick and mortar store owners to listen to this just to learn about what it's like to run a product-based business and what it's like for them to wholesale to us. I think it's a two-way road. I really love the way this podcast episode ends. So make sure you connect with Katie online. She shares all of that stuff at the end of the episode. But I genuinely believe whether you own a store or whether you make your own products or both, that this is a really good episode to listen to. I also like that Katie shares four common mistakes that wholesalers make. So go ahead and listen to the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you to Katie for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. And if you want to find links to anything that we mentioned or how to connect with Katie and find her website, all that good stuff, you can find it in the show notes for this episode. That's SavvyShopkeeper.com forward slash episode 193. Enjoy the interview. Hi, Katie. I'm so happy to have you here today. I'm really looking forward to interviewing you. I've followed you for a really long time. I know sometimes that's weird. Like when people say that to me, they're like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I've listened to you for like two years. That that applies here. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to having this interview and getting all of your insight. I just mentioned before we press record that when I first started on my own journey, I started to create content and information for the store owners who also made their own products Mm -hmm. and then were looking to wholesale. And then I realized it's really hard to serve everyone for everything, right? Yes, it is. (laughs) So I shifted and said, okay, I'm I'm really going to focus on the brick and mortar store owners and helping brick and mortar store owners. So I love when I realized that I could interview you for this, because we have quite a few brick and mortar store owners in my community and who listen to this podcast who are also makers and they make their own products. You can provide them so much more information and insight than I can. So let's just start off by you introducing yourself and telling everyone about your journey. And I just have to say, your about page on your website is so good. It's so good. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. We were just actually having a conversation about it the other day of, do we need to change it? We definitely need to update a bit, but thank you for saying that. It's fantastic. So we will link all of that and and we'll talk about that in a second. But Katie's business is proof to product. We're just going to get that out there right now. So tell us about you, Katie. Kathy, first off, thank you so much for having me. It's just a joy to be here and to have this conversation with you. And like you, I have a very similar story to how I got into this world. I had a product-based business. I knew wholesale was what I wanted to be doing, but I was learning as I was going. I was figuring things out on the fly. I was looking at Google, you know, Facebook groups weren't a thing. Instagram wasn't even around at the time. And you know, I just had to figure it out as I went. And as I looked around in my industry, I saw there's a lot of us that are in the same boat here. And I have done the research on certain pieces or I've experienced certain things that 
is valuable to share with my colleagues so that they don't trip on the same stones that I tripped on. And, you know, they have knowledge base that I could benefit from. And so I started my product-based business in 2008. Uh, In 2011 is when I started what is now Proof to Product. And again, it just stemmed from a place of let's share what we all know so that we can all grow together. We can strengthen our industry as a whole. And there's no sense in each of us reinventing the wheel. We can build businesses that suit the life we want to live and, you know, can really empower us to still make a healthy living financially. We don't have to do that alone, even though the business is ours alone. So that is really how my start in this world came about. I've now been teaching thousands of product creators and manufacturers over the last 13 years, I guess it is, on how to create a product line, prepare it for the wholesale market, and then scale up their sales. So strengthen their relationships and do all the things that, you know, to to connect with your audience, to connect with the shop owners that you work with. And I will say, I want to put a plug out to your shop owners that are listening. The indie shops are the bread and butter of our community sales. Our indie manufacturers love working with our indie shops. And honestly, they are the reason that so many of our manufacturers survived you know, the pandemic and down seasons. It's because of those relationships. It's the continued ordering. And so thank you to your audience for just how much they love on the ind- independent manufacturers as well. Yeah. And thank you to your audience because so many <laughs> of us thrived and or survived the pandemic because of the handmade products, because of how much all of our customers love that. So I feel like this interview is so timely and so perfect. I also want to give you credit for the longevity of your business because you just (laughs) had 13 years and that's incredible, especially in this like industry. And I can tell from listening to your podcast, the proof to product podcast, that it's been a long journey and your program improves and improves and it just gets better over time. So 13 years is commendable. So I just wanted to make sure I gave you credit for that. Thank you, Kathy. We are just wrapping up the 42nd round of our signature program. And thank you for acknowledging because I don't know anyone else in this online space that has run the same program that many times. And I will give myself a pat on the back because we do continue to evolve it and you know improve it based upon what's happening in the current market. We want people to get the most current relevant information that they can apply to their business. This is not a program that, you know, I recorded 13 years ago and we're just kind of selling it as is. It's really involved. I spend a lot of time and energy, you know, working with each student. And, but thank you for saying that because I I agree. There's not many people in the industry that have been around that long and done the same thing for that long. No, uh, so much credit. And then it gives me hope like, okay, because I feel like I'm always improving my membership and it's never one and done. It is a constant evolving, improvement, serving, finding how to serve your audience the best. So I had to give you credit for that. Mm -hmm. So I really just want to dig in if you're okay with that. I feel like there are a lot of, like I mentioned, brick and mortar store owners in my community who make their own products and Mm -hmm. sell it in their stores. And they know the, uh, they know the process of wholesaling, right? They, they buy wholesale from either handmade artists or they buy wholesale from market and vendors at market, Yep. but actually doing it and selling wholesale yourself is a bit of a different ball game. Yeah. So I really want to ask you about what are the things that these handmade artists in my community can do to dip their toe in the water of wholesaling? How do they know if they're ready to wholesale? Mm, Good question. Well, first off, I want to acknowledge and just reinforce what you said. We are seeing an uptick of independent shop owners who are creating and selling their own product line in their shops. But now they have this desire to extend that further, to extend that revenue stream, to extend the visibility for their brand. And so they're looking to sell wholesale to other shop owners. And I, we had quite a few in this latest round of our program who are brick and mortar shop owners, but again, looking to expand. And so there are several things that you can do to prepare yourself for the wholesale market. But we teach a very specific strategy that is built on a 
like really a three-step pillar. So the first step in this is ensuring that your product line is truly ready for wholesale. And as somebody on the buyer side, you know that you want brands that are following industry standards that are priced in the realm that they should be priced at. They want you want to see that they have enough product. You want to see that they're releasing new product on a consistent basis, ideally in conjunction with your buying seasons, right? So getting that product line ready and making sure that you have enough product and that it's priced right is the first step. So if a shop owner is starting to dabble in this, definitely play in your own shop. You can release stuff whenever you want in your own shop. You could do onesie, twosies, whatever you want. But when it comes to selling wholesale, that's where we have to get serious about things. And that's where I want you releasing new product two to three times a year. I want you to have at least 12 SKUs that you're releasing in that line. Like there's some very concrete steps that I would like people to take in order to have success with wholesale. Now, is everyone going to do these things? No, and that's okay. But like the framework we teach will set you up for a long-term success and the systems and workflows that you need to make wholesale a priority. So the product line is that first piece. We want that squared away. The second piece is the sales portion. And I'm not talking about going out and doing sales. I'm talking about your terms and conditions for wholesale. Those are critical, right? Shop owners want to know how much am I going to have to spend? What's your MOQ for each piece? You know, they want to know how to purchase. There's fundamental pieces of that sales process that you need to have in place. We also want you to have a catalog. I know a lot of shop owners will ask for line sheets or catalogs. Those terms are typically used interchangeably, but we teach a method for creating a catalog that is a functional sales tool. It is not a portfolio piece. It is not a lookbook. It is a functional catalog that folks can purchase from. And again, all of the details, all of the price tags, all the information that you as a shop owner need to know are there and it's easy for you to contact the, the manufacturer too if they need help. So the second step is focusing on the sales piece. Like, are we making it easy for our shops to purchase from us. And all of your listeners will have a leg up on that because they know what their buying preferences are and what systems they've seen from other brands that are easy to use or, you know, just how they like to be sold to. And now every buyer is different, of course, but again, your your folks will have a unique perspective on that, which I think will be great. So we work on our product, get that ready. We work on our sales pieces. We make sure that is strong. And then the third piece of this is the outreach and the marketing. And that is where we start to do the outreach to different shops that are a good fit for our brand. And that's where I teach a wide variety of things like email marketing or social media marketing or exhibiting at trade shows or different things like that. There's multiple ways to get your products in front of buyers, as your audience will know. But figuring out what that mix of touch points are is going to be unique to your specific brand. So those are the three pieces of what we teach. We actually break out trade shows as a whole fourth category in our program because it's such a large piece of content of how to exhibit and how to leverage that for the most optimization of sales and things. But those three are the core pieces of your wholesale foundation. Yeah. So I love that you give it a bit of a, like a framework and there's steps to it. I also understand why number four would be trade shows. (laughs) And when you talk about even just mentioning these three parts, I get a little overwhelmed at the thought of, oh yeah, there are so many parts and pieces and moving parts to running that kind of business. So take a brick and mortar store owner who's trying to run their brick and mortar store, and then you add this revenue stream and this to their business. And that's a lot to take on. And you also realize, what's that? It's a lot to manage. Yeah. And if you want to do it well, there are so many things that you can implement to do that well, but sometimes you kind of need to know what are, what are those things? Yeah. So I like that you mentioned for step number one, like knowing that your product line is ready for this. I like that you said like that they can use their store as a testing ground. Mm -hmm. Can you keep up with the pace there? Can you know, is it priced right? Is it turning too fast? Is it not turning enough? All of that kind of stuff. So you have yeah. the perfect place to test that. And I can think of one person in particular in, in my membership group, Master Shopkeepers. She just recently started making her own products and sell 
you know, she sells them and she's considering wholesale. So I have her in mind when I, when we're recording this podcast episode. And I also want to mention in case they're new and we do have people who are making items and have never heard the term MOQ, that that means minimum order quantity, right? Yes. I apologize. I I go into my jargon a little too much there, but yes, it would be minimum order quantity. So when you're purchasing from a manufacturer, you're purchasing each SKU in a certain quantity. So greeting cards is typically six per SKU. A lot of the gift items are four per SKU. Some are in case packs of 12 or 24. We see that a lot with candles. So it's going to depend on what the product category is to determine what you're purchasing in. This episode is brought to you by the Savvy Shopkeeper Quiz. As a shopkeeper myself, I've learned that there are action steps we can take during specific stages on our retail journeys that help us create efficiency and improve profitability so we can grow. But first, it helps to know which stage you're in so I can help you determine what to focus on. Sign up for my newsletter and take the quiz to find out which shopkeeper stage you're in. You'll get a helpful Savvy Shopkeeper roadmap with a list of helpful podcast episodes and two free resources for where you currently are in your journey. If you want to take the quiz, visit SavvyShopkeeper.com forward slash quiz. Let's go back to number two, because I often find as a buyer myself that the most frustrating part sometimes from buying from potential handmade artists it or people that have their items manufactured is they don't have the proper like catalog or a simple way for me to understand exactly what the terms are, how to easily order, because I don't really necessarily have time as a brick and mortar store owner to go back and forth in 20 emails. <laughs> I'm giving you the hands. Yes. At the like praise hands, because yes, I will tell you, I mean, I've talked to dozens of shop owners. I've worked with thousands of manufacturers and this is the thing I'm constantly trying to beat home. From the manufacturer side, we have to make it as simple as possible. We have to think about the customer journey. We have to think about the thoughtful touch points. We need we need to make it simple, easy, and also we have to recognize that shop owners are extremely busy. They have personal lives. They have things going on in their shop they don't have time to go back and forth. They don't have time to go to multiple platforms to place their order. You know, I I really stress with my customers, my audience, be flexible and do what you can to make that process easy for folks. So I understand your frustrations there. Yeah, we're often I want to I'm like, I want to buy from you, but I don't have time to ask you the hundred questions that I need to finally get to a point where I order. I also don't want it to take me four hours to place an order. I just I know this is going to sound awful, but I just want to click and go. Right. Like that's why platforms like fair are easy for brick and mortar store owners is because we can just do a couple clicks, see the pictures that we need to see, place the order, and we're not going back and forth and communicating for hours. So I have an appreciation for that. But I also know that fair isn't always necessary. They can sell directly to us if they have the right systems in place. Yes. I, I, and, you know, fair has been a touchy subject for a few years now. It's been touchy with the makers. It's been touchy with the shop owners. It's been a touchy subject with sales reps that work on behalf of the manufacturers. I think that the way I talk about fair is that it's a tool and we need to all leverage it for the benefits that we receive from it. But we also need to remember that fair is there for their own success and their own well-being. They are not necessarily making decisions with the shop owner in mind or the maker in mind. And and they're thinking about us, of course, as they're making decisions, but ultimately it's going to drive back to what benefits fare the most. And so I understand your reasoning. Online platforms, ordering online is very easy. It makes it easy for the shop owners. Fair has allowed for extended terms and returns, things that are not common, for indie shops and indie makers to be able to offer. So it does help to bridge that gap, right? But also, I think um, 
there are brands that do have their own sales platforms and there are brands that are doing, I mean, everyone's taking direct orders. So (laughs) we'll take direct orders any which way. I joke, we'll take it by a carrier pigeon if that's (laughs) what you want to do. But my point is just, there are multiple ways to order. I understand the benefits of FAIR. I also just for context, if your shop owners that are listening do not know this, please do order through the manufacturer's direct links on FAIR. So if they send you a link with an email, please do order through that link. The reason being, if you order through their direct links, they do not pay a commission on your order. So if they have done the outreach to you, they've built the relationship, maybe they met you at a trade show and you didn't order there, but they're following up with you and they're sending the FAIR link, they're okay taking the order through FAIR, but they would prefer you do it through their direct link so that they don't have to pay commission because they were the ones that went out and found you and nurtured that relationship. Thank you for saying that because I don't know if every brick and mortar store who listens to this podcast knows that, mm-hmm. but I, I do know that so many of us are heart centered and that we want to support the manufacturers and the makers so much more. We want, we don't want them to necessarily take a hit on commission or fees. So I'm so glad that you said that. Hopefully every time somebody goes to place an order, they do that. But I also like the idea that the that they just have a good system for us to order directly from them because so yeah. many of us would would like to do that if they have the right tools in place. I also yeah. like that you referred to FAIR as a tool. That's fantastic. I think that's the best way I've ever heard it described. Like it's just one tool in your tool belt. It doesn't have to be the only tool in your tool yes. belt. I equate it to our email service providers or our shipping systems or, you know, your POS systems. And like, it's a tool that we use to amplify and enhance our efficiency in our business. But if it's no longer working for you or, you know, if if people, I know there's some shop owners that do not like to order through FAIR for different reasons. There's brands that don't want to be unfair. So we need to utilize the tools in our toolbox that are best for us. Yeah. The next one that you mentioned was number three was outreach and marketing. How do you find what's the best tool that you find for your community for marketing their businesses? Email marketing is hands down the best way for my audience of makers to reach your audience of shop owners. I know we all get a lot of emails. So my emphasis is on teaching them how to create thoughtful, informative, emails that really do help you make a buying decision. Being clear, concise, providing the information that you need to know to place that order, how to order, how much you'll spend, all those key questions that you con- you know, all of you have every time you want to order. So cutting down on the amount of back and forth and instead providing those details in the first email or the first couple emails that we send. Yeah. And I would say the same thing to my audience. It's so underutilized. Yeah, It's one of the simplest tools that we can use, but we overthink it. Well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to send. Am I selling too much? Probably the same as you. It's the same exact thing. They're afraid to sound salesy. (laughs) They're afraid to bother people. They don't know when to send or what to send or how often to send. They Again, the bothering piece, they feel like they're bothering people. And I am constantly reminding people that our customers want to hear from us. And if we're adding value at every single touch point, that is beneficial to the store owner. If we are writing to them and letting them know, hey, we've got this stuff in stock, ready to ship, we can get it to you quickly. And let's say they're in a pinch in Q4 and need more product for the shelves, that's beneficial to the shop owner to hear that you have these things in stock, ready to ship, and you can get it out quickly. That's providing a valuable service. So I I mean, I, I'm not a fan of the, I'm just checking in, like that does nothing for anyone, right? But if we can add value and create a stronger relationship, email is, in my opinion, one of the strongest ways to do that. And sometimes for both our communities, storytelling, just sharing a story of some connection that they made with another store owner or how it's performing or sharing pictures. Sometimes just even storytelling can go a long way and it's simple, but I get it. We all overthink it and overanalyze it and make it harder than it needs to be. And then the fourth, kind of the fourth thing that you mentioned, but I feel like would be like a two hour, at least a two hour podcast would be those (laughs) 
trade shows. Oh my, yes. I don't, can't even imagine. Like I, I do, I see them in the temporaries and I think the, the amount of work it took for you to get here. So much respect for that process. Yeah. Yeah, our alumni spend anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand dollars to do the international gift shows, the larger gift shows. I'm not talking about the regional smaller shows. I'm talking Atlanta, New York now, those types of shows. And it is a ton of work leading up to it. And it's a ton of work being there. And then it's a ton of work afterwards as well. And so I just did a training this week on trade shows. And I keep telling people the goal is sales, of course, is that's our main reason for being there. However, the benefit of being there in person, there's it's the contacts we meet. It's the feedback we get on products. It's the opportunities that may arise from being in the same room as others. So there's a lot of unquantifi- unquantifiable benefits to going to those shows in addition to the sales. And so I try to remind people that it's a step in a longer journey. And it's just one other way of increasing visibility and connection with the stores you're working with or prospects that you'd like to work with. And if we can talk about quantifying, because I know you're a data, data, depending. (laughs) I'm a number person, yes. (laughs) And so am I. I know that about you. I've listened to you long enough to know that. And I knew (laughs) we could jam out on metrics and all of the things. Yeah. How long does it take someone who sets up in a temporary, you know, how long, I guess maybe it just doesn't matter probably how long it would take for them to like break even on a a $15,000 investment. Well, some of them are breaking even at the show. Some are taking a lot longer than that to break even. I teach a strategy too, where we do pre-show marketing. And so some people will also get a lot of orders before they even arrive at the show. So that's always the, it's it's nice to go into the shows knowing that you already have a few orders in, in your hand, but it's different for every brand. It's going to depend on what you sell, the price point, which shows you go to, the volume of people that are there. There's no clear you can expect, you know, a return on your investment in this amount of time. Unfortunately, I did get that question in my class this week of like, what's the expected ROI? And I said, <laughs> it's it's kind of like gambling in a way, which is scary, but it's like paid advertising and other things we do. But what I tell people from my side of things is it's a marketing expense. So we want to add it to our marketing budget for the year. If you want to do a show and you do everything you can pre-show during the show and after the show to maximize that investment in that opportunity. So it's about letting people know you're going to be there. Even if the shops aren't going to the show, we still want to tell them here's where we'll be. And we want to extend the show specials to them. At the show, we want to connect with as many people as we can, whether that's other exhibitors and buyers. And I mean, I met other suppliers and yeah, there's just so many opportunities. And then after the show, I will say people fall short on the follow-up and it's a missed opportunity where they're leaving money on the table. So we teach a lot about here's how to follow up without, again, feeling like a bother. Yeah, but it's it's hard to quantify that that question though. I knew the answer to that, but I know that's what some people <laughs> are going to be asking because For sure. the, the store owners who are making their own products and are considering shifting into wholesale for their products they probably have that question. So I'm trying to think of all the questions that they would have. In general, I typically recommend that folks do their, like, again, get the product ready, get the sales tools ready. And then I really do want folks doing their own outreach and connections and selling of their products for a while before they will jump into trade shows. I personally did a trade show in my first six months of business. And I had my pricing was wrong. I got shut down by the fire marshal 18 hours before the show started. I, you know, there were so many things that went wrong. Now, nobody really knew about it at the time. They make for good stories now. But my point is, if I could go back, I would instead get my product stronger, get my sales tools stronger and practice my sales process and really work on building connections with the shops I want to be in. Going through that process helps you refine your messaging, your sales process, your fulfillment process on orders. And then once I have a little bit of a name for myself and a little more visibility, that's when I would go and do a show. And that's also too, after doing my own sales for a while, that's when I would consider bringing on a sales team or some of these other things. I think there's critical importance to doing that sales process, which your folks are doing day in and day out, but it is a different audience when you're selling direct to consumer versus to another business. Yeah, that's a great point too, is you can sell direct to consumer. And I know I've listened to plenty of your podcast episodes where you interview your 
program members and they share about that. They sh- yeah. I love that they share the numbers too, because I'll say <laughs> I'm 20 to consumer and 80 wholesale or whatever it is. I, I love hearing the numbers. Same. So I know you have four common mistakes that people make when they they head into wholesaling. But before we do that, can we talk a little bit about manufacturing? Because I have sure. so many questions. <laughs> yeah. Like how, how do how do they find the manufacturer? How does that whole process look? I will tell you, it's a slog. I I think when you join a community like ours, we have a vendor directory that we provide to folks and it includes a number of different manufacturing resources that have been tried and true and utilized by our community. So that's one shortcut. But I will say it is tough. I mean, I think the key is to hone in on what kind of product you want to create first and foremost. I think sometimes people do the opposite. They're like, who can I work with and what do they make? And we don't want to do that. I want you creating products that are meaningful to you because they'll be easier to sell and market. So figure out what kind of product you want to create. And then, you know, it's a lot of sleuthing. It's a lot of Googling. I do not encourage folks to message other makers and say, hey, where do you get that made? Because they're not going to share that proprietary information. In a safe community like ours where we're, you know, we have this vendor directory, that's a different story. But I've had a lot of people that are like, well, I messaged, you know, this big brand and asked where they get this product made. And they told me to get lost, essentially. I mean, not those words. I said, yeah, because they worked all really hard to kind of identify that that resource. But it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of Googling. It's a lot of getting samples and seeing if the quality is up to snuff. It's a lot of talking to them about what types of quantities they can produce so that you can get the price per piece where you need it to be for your profit margins. Sometimes it's trying to find domestic short run, meaning small quantity printers or manufacturers that you can work with. Sometimes it means going overseas if something's more complex. But if you go overseas, you got to do large quantities and deal with, you know, the logistics of that. So there's pros and cons. It's tough though. And I, I think that's why most people will enter the product space with some of the tried and true products that are easier to manufacture. In our community, that's a lot of stickers. It's a lot of greeting cards. It's a lot of posters, or we have a lot of people doing candles now because that's gotten a lot easier to, to manufacture domestically in smaller batches. I have a lot of people too, who are utilizing print on demand services to test the market for something. So they'll use products from a print-on-demand service, run those sales to their retail audience online to get a sense of, is there a demand for this? Are people interested in it? They can play with their pricing a little bit and figure out what it needs to be at. And if it takes off, then they'll go find somebody that can produce that product in larger quantities at a price per piece that would work for wholesale. Okay. So I, I feel like I was kind of dancing around your topic there, but it's 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 a process. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I want to know. I mean, like I mentioned, I feel like we can talk about each question I ask you for two hours each <laughs> and then some. What percentage of your of your audience or your program members actually make their products versus how many mm. get their products manufactured? Do you have any idea on that? I don't know what the exact breakdown is, but I would say majority likely started making their own. And once they started wholesaling, they looked for outsourcing partners. If you're wholesaling It's expected that you're carrying inventory because our shop owners want the product when they want the product. And there's not a lot of people that will wait like for a 30 day or 60 day turnaround time. So, you know, certain products are easier to outsource and manufacture elsewhere than others. I have somebody in my group right now who does bracelets that are handmade by women overseas, like a a village does it for her. And she like has personal relationships with everyone in the village. And so, you know, for that, I talked to her about, okay, well, we extend the turnaround times, but also we need to get a buffer of inventory going before you start really pushing on the sales. So I share that just to say there's ways to work around all of that. And I have people that really want to stay with handmade products and that's part of their brand story. And so I remind them, okay, well, let's figure out how to do this then. Do we train on other people to do it so you're not the sole person? Do we outsource pieces of it, the process, but ultimately the end conclusion product is coming from your studio? So there's ways to maintain that if somebody wants to. But I would say my my students who are really scaling into multi-six and seven figures, they're all mainly outsourcing most of their products. I don't know a handmade brand that's at that level. Yeah. And that makes sense. Like you can only 
you can only produce so much. And yeah. some of these handmade products are really involved. I mean, obviously it takes a lot of effort and yeah, tender, loving care sometimes. Yeah. And that takes time. It does. And, you know, that's what a lot of people want to buy too. So I'm not trying to discourage folks from the handmade sector. It's just more about focusing internally on what do I want my business to be? What do I want my daily life to look like? You know, and, and then making decisions for your business, particularly around manufacturing based on that. This episode is brought to you by Master Shopkeepers, my mastermind group for brick and mortar retail store owners. If you're craving support, connection, inspiration, and motivation for your retail business, apply to join us. It doesn't matter what stage of shopkeeping you're in, what matters is your drive to work less, profit more, and grow, both personally and professionally. Learn more at SavvyShopkeeper.com forward slash group membership. That's SavvyShopkeeper.com forward slash group membership, all one word. Okay, so let's dig in. Not that I want to like focus on mistakes, but I think we can learn from those mistakes. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we've kind of covered several of them just in our conversation here. But I would say the four most common mistakes that I see brands making when they're trying to get into wholesale is that first, their products are not priced right. They're either too high or they're too low, most commonly too low. And if they're too low for wholesale, your profit margins are going to be so slim And when you start to crunch those numbers, I did an episode recently called Why I Don't Want You Filling a $25 Wholesale Order. And I ran the math for folks. And I said, if you're selling this, you know, if you're selling an order for $25, you are losing money on that deal. And the same is true when we look at individual products. So if we're selling them too low and we don't pay attention to our numbers, we don't look at what our margins are, you could be selling something and losing money on every deal. So their products not being priced right is the first thing where people tend to go wrong. And I know a lot of people are afraid to look at the numbers. Hopefully your audience is comfortable with their numbers, but that's that's the first thing I want people to do is get comfortable with the numbers. The second mistake folks make are incorrect or incomplete wholesale terms and conditions. So the sales terms and conditions, they don't have opening order amounts. They don't have the MOQ that we talked about earlier. They are not utilizing those terms and conditions to kind of set boundaries and expectations for what the sales process will look like. And We do provide guidance on what should be included in those terms and conditions, but ultimately every brand is going to need to make modifications based upon their own circumstances. Do they want to accept returns? Will they allow exchanges? What do they do and how do they handle if product arrives damaged in in the shipment to you? So those are things that people need to include in their terms and conditions. And when they don't have them, one, it could lead to problems down the road. And two, I think it from the buyer side, it, it creates a little bit of a red flag of like, again, how you were saying earlier, like it's frustrating when I don't know how much I need to spend or how things are going to work. And so the terms and conditions lay it all out. It's the contract by which we're doing a deal on. So having that clearly laid out and concisely laid out so that everyone knows what to expect, it just helps the process through, makes the buying process easier. The third thing that people uh, make a mistake on is that their pitches are not strong. And you all see this day in and day out. So I'm preaching to the choir here a little bit. But again, back to what we talked about before, pitches are missing critical information. They're not packed with, here's how to order. Here's the information you need to know to place the order. Oftentimes, they're a little soft without a strong call to action. They're not telling people what to do next if they're interested. The other thing I'm seeing is people are pitching shop owners before they're ready. So before the product is ready, before the sales tools are ready, those first two pieces we discussed, they're going ahead and pitching. And then they're realizing, oh, shoot, my products aren't right. My sales stuff isn't dialed in. And so that's another mistake under that pitching process that I see quite often. And then the fourth thing, we kind of talked about this too a little bit, but people are jumping into trade shows without the proper preparation or knowledge. And it's a huge financial risk. And so again, going back to what I mentioned before, I really want to see people selling their own products for a while before they take that leap and make that jump financially and also with the risk tolerance. But those are kind of the four common wholesale mistakes that I see. Yeah. And that that makes sense. I mean, we probably as store owners, we're all listening, whoever's listening and thinking like, yep, I see that. I see that. Yep. Another one with poor pitches is like, what do you recommend for your audience in terms of 
pitching, whether it's in, because this see, always seems to be a conversation is the store owners. We're doing a hundred things in our stores yep. while we're open and in the space. And then someone walks in and wants to sell their product. So what's the recommendation? <laughs> I wish you so- could I wish you could all see Katie's face. What is the recommendation you make to them to pitch to us? Okay. I recommend that no one enter a store unannounced without an appointment or without anything to drop off things with the expectation that they get to talk to the buyer. I I, I equate this to, we don't like it when salespeople show up at our front door at our house. Don't do it to buyers. They're busy. Also, they may not be the one in the shop. It might be somebody else working that day. So my advice to them is do not show up unannounced. Do not show up to a shop and expect to have a full-on conversation or a sales appointment with anyone. I do tell them, because I got some pushback on this a couple weeks ago when I was teaching it. And they're like, but, 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 but can I just, and I'm like, oh dear. So I, they said, can I just drop something off? I said, look, if you're dropping off a catalog and maybe a sample of your product warrants a sample, yes, that's totally fine, right? But do not expect to have a conversation or a sales appointment in that time. So that's what I teach my folks. I do tell them, you know, I got some pushback of, well, I'm local. And I said, well, if you want to reach out or on that sample, if you drop it off, you could leave a handwritten note that says I'm local. If you ever want to see things in person, let me know. Here's my contact information. But I'm not a fan of showing up unannounced. And I teach that pretty sternly (laughs) in my programming. (laughs) I hope you realize how many store owners that are listening right now just want to hug you. (laughs) Well, it's just such a distraction. I mean, the things you all are doing in your shop all day, you're juggling a million things. You have a ton of different things on your mind. You're helping a customer that comes in. You're trying to merchandise something. You're thinking about the taxes and you're thinking about the staff and the schedule. Like, There's nothing worse than that type of interruption. And I tell my folks, I said, it doesn't make a good first impression. You're then seen as a nuisance or an interruption rather than, oh, I'm excited to talk to this person or see their product. It doesn't leave for a good first impression. So that I I don't mean to sound so harsh about it, but it is one of my, my sticking points. Yeah. And by no means am I suggesting that our time is more valuable than their time. No, 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 no. I want to be clear about that too. We're not necessarily busier than they are. It's not a a competition of busy or value. It's just that, yeah, normally when we're in our stores, like I think about my list, I'm in my store six hours and the number of things that I want to get done in those six hours. And sometimes I'm by myself. I really want to focus on what I need to get done in between customers, you know, and that six hours to me is really, really precious. No, I agree. And I do equate it to that. I said, if you were working on something in your studio and somebody showed up unannounced, how would you feel? And so I try to reframe it to about, you know, just, just think about human nature about some of this stuff. Yeah. So I just want to kind of quickly recap what you said. The four mistakes are not priced right, lacking terms or conditions. Number three is poor pitches. And number four is poor trade show prep. Just more so jumping into trade shows before they're quite ready. Yeah. It's the timing more so than and preparation. Yeah. Okay. And I do that because I know sometimes my brain, it gets caught up in the conversation. And then I think, what were those four things that she just said? So I wanted to just recap them. And then another question that I have for you, and we'll start to wrap this up is what, you know, there's so much about for with store owners about what what your audience can do for us. What (laughs) is it that we can do for them? Like, what is it that we can do to build better relationships with them? Is there, you know, of course, like I say, well, I want a simple catalog and I want simple instructions and I want to know minimum orders and I want it to be easy to order. What can we do for them? Oh, thank you for asking this question. I think this is a great dialogue too. I think, you know, being cognizant of certain things like those direct fare links that we talked about earlier, I mean, using the one link can save them the hassle of having to go contest the commission with fare. So that saves them time. The other thing is too, you can also ask them, do you prefer that I order on fair or directly with you? Some people will want it direct. Some will be happy for you to go through fair. So if you have that ability to, you know, ask their preference there, that would be great. 
I know you all get a ton of pitches every single day and that it's impossible to reply to all of them, particularly if you're not interested in, in ordering at the moment. But I also think connecting with and even if it's following on social media or liking some of their posts on social media, even if you're not ready to buy, we'll signal to them, look, I'm interested down the road. I might not now might not be the right time, but I am interested down the road. They send a lot of stuff out to a lot of people and they oftentimes never hear back. And so again, I'm not suggesting that you thoughtfully respond to everyone and say thanks, but no thanks. But in so much that if you are interested in a brand, reaching out or just saying this looks great, but not right now, or, you know, following them on social media or just kind of having more of that casual low level relationship will go a long way because it tells them like, oh, okay, no, I am interested. And they, again, won't attack you. They won't like bother you, but (laughs) I, but I, well, most won't, um, none in my community will, but I also think it's, it helps them know who to stay connected with and who to prioritize because they are trying to reach so many different people. The other thing that I think would be helpful for your audience to know is majority of my students, and again, thousands of folks here, independent brands across multiple industries, most of them are working alone or they have a very small team, much like your listeners, I'm assuming, you know, very small teams. So they, I I just, they're humans too, just like you. And I think it's always important that all of us remember there's a human on the other side of things and to give benefit of the doubt where possible. So just in so much that we remember that, I think that'll go further to strengthen all relationships, whether you're buying from them or not. And I don't know, I just, I'm a firm believer in putting ourselves in other people's shoes and and having that empathy and the human connection. Yeah. It's a good reminder to me too, as a store owner who gets pitches I feel like that's one place that I've dropped the ball where I, if I know for sure I'm not interested in the product that I could at least respond and say, no, thank you. Because I imagine part of your training is teaching them how to reach out to hundreds of store owners. And then you have to keep track of that in a database or in a spreadsheet. And you know, you want to be able to say, like, let's go ahead and move that store owner over to the not interested column and then kind of clean up that database to make it easier to manage. So I, it's a good reminder for me, too, that we're all human. Well, and what I want to add to that too is they don't want to bother you if you're not interested in their products. And one of the things I teach is our products, our services are not for everyone, right? And so we want to attract the right people. And I don't want to say repels and like go away, but like we don't want to bother the people that aren't a good fit. So if something is truly not a good fit and you're able to just write back and say, it looks great, but not for us, thanks, or, you know, or you don't even have to say that looks great. You could just say, you know, not the right fit for us. Um, I We do teach people about follow-up and continuing and unless they hear a direct no to stay on it because a lot of times people get busy. But yeah, I mean, if you don't want to hear from them, they don't want to bother you either. So. Yeah. Well, I don't want to waste someone else's time, you know. And they I don't want to waste yours. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one more question and then we're going to wrap this up. I want to know everyone to know how to follow you. What is there an expectation about tagging or photo credit? You know what? This is a good question. We were just having a conversation and I was encouraging my students to share the stores. Like if you were to order from me, once I ship the order, I would... I personally think it's fun to take a picture from your website or your social, share it and tag you and say, hey, we're super excited to be working with Kathy. And that way it adds visibility for you. It also tells our local customers that follow us online, hey, here's a shop in your area that you can go purchase from. Um, I think legally we're supposed to ask permission before we like, you know, pull somebody else's photo. But I also think if you're doing it in your stories where you're sharing from the other person's feed, it's a little more okay because especially if you're tagging them and you know the purpose is to direct them to um the other maker like i i don't know what the other rules are like if you're sharing a product that's carried in your store i see shops not tagging the brand and i see some shops tagging the brand and yeah. i don't know what the like legal answer is to that but i yeah, would but say I think like reciprocity is kind of cool in that respect too, where you're just marketing each other. It comes from a good place and you're hundred percent each other. I think the more we can lift each other up, the better all of our businesses will become. And so if, you know, if you have that ability to share your brands and your makers, please do. And know that I'm encouraging them to do the same with the shops they work with. 
That's such a great way to wrap this up. (laughs) It is, isn't it? It really is. So I often joke with my friend Maureen. I don't know if she'll listen to this podcast episode, but I joke with her. She has a pop-up, a holiday pop-up shop. It's called Home for the Holidays. It's in Lakewood, Ohio. And she brings in 40 makers, all mostly local. And it's curated beautifully. Everyone loves it. Everyone loves the mission and the vision of this pop-up. She's been doing it probably for like seven or eight years and I, uh, every time she opens up again, I have FOMO. And I'm like, one day I'm going to make a product and I'm going to sell it there. <laughs> You're going to go to her market. Yes. <laughs> but before I do that, I'm going to join Katie's program. Because <laughs> I want to make sure I'm doing it right. So can you share with everyone, what's your website? What is your program and yeah. how they can follow you on social media? Yeah, sure. So we're proof2product.com. Our podcast is called Proof to Product and it's available everywhere you can listen to this show. So um, we're on all the platforms. I'm on Instagram at Proof to Product. So that's where you can find me everywhere on social. Um, I would say if your listeners are interested in learning more about whether wholesale is the right fit for them, I would invite them to listen to my free wholesale audio series. They can get that at proof2product.com slash private pod for private podcasts. So it's private and then P-O-D at the end of that. And the Wholesale Audio Series, its you can listen on your favorite podcast app on the go. You can binge it in less than an hour. But essentially, I walk you through the key things you need to understand before you jump into wholesale, some mistakes we see. I elaborate on some of the things we talked about here. So again, that's proofdoproduct.com slash private pod. And then I have a number of programs available at different levels of business. For your audience, I would encourage them to get involved in our labs program. That's where we talk about strengthening our business foundations, but also the product development stage. And then from there, people will advance into our wholesale program later. So um, that's at proofdoproduct.com slash labs. Okay. I love the consistency and all of it. And I think that private pot is genius. I might have to borrow that idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's actually like, I don't want to say old as if it's outdated, but it's it, it was a webinar that I used to do all the time. And I've continued to update it as we went. And then I realized, you know what? Majority of my audience is already listening to our podcast and they like to consume our content in that way. Let me repackage this so they can listen on the go when they're emptying the dishwasher or picking up the kids or whatever it might be. Um, And it's been really great. They're appreciating the format and they're not having to sit at their computer to watch a video or any of that. So. Yeah, right. That well. speaks to me. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> Katie, I knew I would really enjoy interviewing you. I genuinely have. Thank you so much for doing this. I know my audience is going to appreciate it. And again, I love the idea that we all just lift each other up because we we can all use it, right? Yes. <laughs> Kathy, thank you so much for having me. It was really a joy. I've listened to your show as well and admire what you're doing for shop owners. I think we all need our communities of folks who understand what we're going through day in and day out. And for them to have you as a leader in that space is wonderful. So thank you for all the work you're doing and just thank you for having me today.